This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde on Balenciaga's festive faux pas. The writer Paula Cocosa interviews former Scientologist Mike Rinder about abandoning his faith and his family. And finally, Rebecca Nicholson meets the actor Billy Piper to talk about her life lived in the spotlight ahead of the return of her TV series, I Hate Susie. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. This week, the fashion house Balenciaga came under fire for a controversial Christmas ad campaign. Even brand ambassador Kim Kardashian spoke out about it. Here, columnist Marina Hyde takes a look at the bizarre series of events that unfolded after the ad came out and considers the moral responsibilities of brands. Read by Rachel Louise Miller. Very early days, of course, but at this stage, you'd probably judge that John Lewis's Christmas ad campaign was going better than Balenciaga's. This is a fast-developing festive cancellation shitstorm, so forgive me if I have missed any major staging posts across the past few days. But the luxury fashion house has issued a mushrooming series of apologies for an ad series featuring children holding handbags crafted from teddy bears dressed in bondage outfits, deleted its entire Instagram history, had a confected industry award withheld from its resident creative genius been exposed for an earlier ad campaign that featured casually placed, hang on, let me get my hazmat gloves, US Supreme Court documents relating to a case involving child abuse images, served a blame-shifting $25 million lawsuit against the producer of that ad, held crisis talks with Kim Kardashian, who has herself issued some Archbishop of Canterbury-style statement about her shock and disgust about the BDSM cuddly toy ads, and become the lightning rod for a raging attack on liberal values, from anyone unfashionably accessorised with common sense to standard alt-right suspects to the full QAnon wingnuts. 
Honestly, you try to spread a little holiday cheer by getting some sad-looking children to hold up your bondage teddy bear handbags, and this is the thanks you get. Short of shooting the ad campaign in the basement of the pizzeria in which Hillary Clinton was conspiracy-theorised as masterminding a paedophile ring, it's hard to see where Balenciaga could have been more extra, creatively speaking. I bet they wish they'd just done a big picture of Santa, sticking some of their gopping sock trainers under the tree of a bolshy Surrey Injectables trainee. But the insistence that the market is something more edgily high art than the reality is the fashion industry's central creed. Once again, we find ourselves in the position of wondering how people in fashion are the only ones yet to see Zoolander. I honestly can't add to the auto-satirical fashpack lunacy of the following actual statement from Balenciaga. We strongly condemn child abuse. It was never our intent to include it in our narrative. Please just take a moment to note how, even in the face of a full-spectrum pedo panic, Balenciaga cannot bring itself to relinquish some pretentious wank about our narrative. It was never our intent to include child abuse in our narrative, is up there with, we accidentally folded corpse violation into our creative concept. The gang is now turning on itself, with Balenciaga blaming an outside company for the bad bits of the campaign, even though fashion house advertising is planned with more ruthless precision and granular attention to detail than some notable ongoing military invasions. The photographer would also like people to know he had nothing to do with it, declaring, I was only and solely requested to lit the given scene and take the shots. Please enjoy this post-fact version, where that famously laissez-faire breed, the fashion photographer, rocks up to a job going, Tell you what, love, you stick the frock on and I'll snap it. We'll be done by Holmes under the hammer. Other telling details? I'm confused to see so little mention of this huge fashion and beyond story on the Vogue website, where one can typically read about all manner of injustices, though not apparently if they involve advertisers. Then again, keeping the advertisers happy is arguably fashion's most tirelessly heroic labour. One of the funniest things about fashion shows is how vanishingly rarely anyone who attends them dislikes what they see. Season after season, the most pedestrian rot is lauded as genius or art. Stinking reviews of shows are so rare that I can count them on a single bejeweled claw. Which brings us to Balenciaga's own show last month. If you somehow missed this one, Forbes described it as a messaging masterstroke while the label's artistic director, Demna Gavasalia, compared his job to Jesus carrying the cross. Yet the show was toweringly absurd, featuring hag-styled women tramping miserably through a vast indoor peat bog. Models with stitched and bruised faces were sent down this slurry walk, where they encountered various types of unpleasantness from piles of mud to Kanye West. As usual... Pointing and laughing was not allowed, so it's no surprise that the subsequent Christmas ad campaign was a skew on the Emperor's new clothes, where the boys made to hold a bondage teddy handbag instead. But perhaps the most unusual part of this scandal is that a brand has been judged the sinner, as opposed to the normal contemporary state of affairs, which is waiting for brands to sit in judgement on other sinners. 
It says only good things about our not-at-all-backwards culture that we're forever waiting for the verdict of brands on everything, from racist celebrities to rogue states, so we can gasp that the ultimate moral reckoning has been handed down. The sponsors, or the advertisers, or the retailers have left them. At the tamer end of affairs, this is why a load of brands felt society simply demanded them to make lavishly ridiculous statements on the death of the Queen. And at the other extreme is the habit of placing far greater emphasis on whether some British football pundit is working for a Qatari broadcaster than on the fact that we cheerfully sell the Qatari regime billions of pounds worth of weapons with barely a peep. Perhaps one day we'll read a statement like iconic defence influencer the UK government says it will no longer work with Saudi Arabia. We partnered with them on one campaign, admittedly it was a bombing campaign, but have no plans to collaborate again. Until then, and for all the justified furore, it's worth remembering that the only thing more ridiculous than fashion politic is real politic. That was, at last, a Kardashian has spoken. Those Balenciaga bears should never have worn bondage gear. By Marina Hyde. Read by Rachel Louise Miller. Next. After 45 years spent as a Scientologist, Mike Rinder became disillusioned and walked out, abandoning his friends and family. Now he's written a book about his experience called A Billion Years, My Escape from a Life in the Highest Ranks of Scientology. He talks to Paula Kokosa about daily life in the organisation, being disciplined and his hopes of reconnecting with his children. Read by Rick Samala. Mike Rinder was so entrenched in the aristocracy of Scientology that Tom Cruise gave him birthday presents, a fancy watch and a set of Bose headphones. He earned promotion after promotion within the C organisation, a sort of executive order, was flown around the world and entrusted with taking Michael Jackson and Lisa Marie Presley on a private tour of the Los Angeles Museum devoted to Scientology's founder, L. Ron Hubbard. But after more than 45 years in the notoriously secretive church, which he now regards as a mind prison, he broke out. Fifteen years on, he has written a book about his time inside. Some of the details are eye-watering, but what Rinder, age 67, really hopes is that a billion years, my escape from a life in the highest ranks of Scientology, will act as a rescue operation for his two adult children who remain in the church. Before Scientology took up all his time and energy, Rinder enjoyed reading Wilbur Smith novels, and his own book starts like an adventure story. In 2007, he walked out of the church's office in central London and ducked into a doorway. He was 52. He carried £200 in cash, a credit card, and his passport. As a church executive, he had pursued people who tried to leave, so he knew what to expect. I needed to get out of sight, remove the batteries from my phones, use only cash, and stay on the move, he says. When he was certain that he wasn't being followed, he caught the tube to the National Portrait Gallery, where he sat on the grass outside and let his heart rate slow to its regular beat. I went, OK, now what? What am I going to do? 
for the first time that I could remember, I wasn't answerable to anyone. Rinder, who grew up in Adelaide, Australia, with his brother and sister, was five years old when a neighbour introduced his parents to Scientology. During his high school years, the family relocated to England for months at a time so they could study at Hubbard's Sussex base. They visited the National Portrait Gallery together, but that's not why Rinder gravitated there. It's a place I'd been to mostly on my own, he says. He ambled through the galleries, and when he finally came out, he knew what to do. He bought cheap clothes, ditched his suit, and found a B&B near Victoria Station. Two days later, he flew back to Florida and made contact with other former Scientologists who helped him slowly begin his new life. Rinder says he plotted his escape for only three days before leaving. But it must have taken more than a few days to undo decades of belief. After all, he was sufficiently immersed to be convinced of an origin story that involves Zenu, the head of the Galactic Confederacy, shipping humans to Earth, sticking them in volcanoes, and dropping bombs on them. Rinder had lived in church quarters, took meals in its military-style canteen, and worked for at least 14 hours a day, seven days a week, for a stipend of $50 a week. How did he begin to acknowledge transgressive thoughts, given that he had been trained to understand them as signs of a reactive mind, as something to be eradicated? He says it was in the years after David Miscavige, the current leader, became head of Scientology in 1987, following Hubbard's death, that things started happening to shake my certainty. In the book, Rinder writes that he was physically assaulted by Miscavige. Other punishments for perceived unhandled evil intentions, or for perceived alleged failings at work, ranged from cleaning a sewage retention pit to wearing a mask made from a paper plate and being taunted by a ventriloquist's doll built in his own image. At other times, employees were made to jump fully clothed into a swimming pool and commit our sins to the deep, Rinder says. He says worst by a long way was the year or more that Rinder spent in a building known as The Hole at the church's international base near Hemet, California. He was initially sent there to explore his subversive intentions, though at the time he didn't have any, and then again, when, as director of the Office of Special Affairs, he failed to prevent the BBC show Panorama from airing a programme on Scientology. Here, he lived under 24-hour guard, in a sort of prison camp for fallen Scientology executives, with no access to the outside world, and no explanation of what crime had earned the placement. He suffered violence, and he inflicted it on others. It was part of the culture. Anyone who didn't do it was subjected to discipline. It was his removal from the hole for a London mission that gave him his chance to escape. Remarkably, even after that, Rinder continued in his faith, identifying as a Scientologist while he worked as a car salesman, his first job on the outside. It was really only that he wanted Miscavige to leave. So if Hubbard were still alive today? I would probably still be there, he says. He still sounds excited when he recalls being appointed Hubbard's special watch messenger in 1978, where orders ranged from telling the cook that Hubbard wanted chicken for dinner to smelling the laundry, which had to be rinsed seven times and aired outside to ensure it was odourless. 
I mean, there is a very limited number of people on this earth that have ever done that, he says of the position. The funny thing is that now that he is out and his faith has lost its grip, Rinder still doesn't seem very free. He thinks he is surveilled, the object of private investigators' interest. And although he says he doesn't care, he keeps a little bin indoors in case his refuse is ransacked. Whistleblowing activities account for about 60% of Rinder's working life now. The other 40% is spent installing audiovisual equipment in the business of another ex-Sea Org member who has also written a book about Scientology. Rinder has contributed to countless documentaries about Scientology, including Leo Remini's Scientology and the Aftermath. He co-presents a podcast with her too. He has a post-Scientology blog. His closest friends are former Scientologists, as is his second wife, Christy Colbran. In a sense, he is a professional former Scientologist. What a job title that is, he exclaims. Doesn't he want to be rid of Scientology altogether? I don't think that I will ever be able to shed this particular job. People contact me every single day asking for help. Besides, he says, he wants to give his older two children the chance to think for themselves. When he was 17 or 18, Rinder joined the Sea Org, the prestigious order within Scientology whose members fill the church's management roles. He signed the organisation's standard billion-year contract, designed to encompass all of his futures, since Scientologists believe in life after life. Hubbard told him he had probably run planets before. His ex-wife Kathy signed the same. In time, so did their children, Taryn and Benjamin. It is fair to say that this setup fostered in Rinder a skewed idea of parenting. He became a father in his twenties, but rarely saw his children. Back then, Rinder says, babies were handed over a few days after birth to Sea Org nurseries, where they were cared for seven days a week from morning till midnight. I'm not saying I was a good parent, he says. I'm saying the exact opposite. I was a Sea Org parent. How old are they now? It's hard for me to remember, Rinder says. Taryn was born in 1978 and it's now 2022. So she's 44 and Benjamin was born in 1980, like two or three. The memory lapse is sort of embarrassing, but you know, he says, they're not exactly in my life anymore. After his escape, he wrote to Kathy to ask her and the children to join him on the outside and she wrote back, fuck off. In Scientology, when a family divides into believers and non-believers, disconnection is a common and painful experience. Taryn, Benjamin and Kathy have all released videos in which they claim Rinder abandoned the family when he left Scientology. His eldest children have published an open letter disowning him, which rather undercuts Rinder's explicit aim in writing to reach out to his children. A book for an audience of two, he calls it. Will they even have seen it? It would be very difficult. I'm sure that they've been told it's full of lies, blah, blah. He didn't send them a copy. That would have been a waste of two books. They would never have reached their recipients, he says. Now that he and Christy, whom he married in 2013, have a ten-year-old son, Jack, Rinder has experienced a new kind of fatherhood. 
I get up every morning and get his breakfast, I prepare his lunch and I drive him to school. We go out to eat, we go to the park, we ride our bikes. We talk about all sorts of stuff, he says. As a Sea Org member, he had no access to a loving family life. His first wife is barely mentioned in the book. It seems amazing they produced children, so rarely do their paths appear to cross. Similarly, Rinder's parents are scarcely name-checked. Tragically, Rinder and Cathy lost a third baby to sudden infant death syndrome, or in the words of Miscavige's wife, who broke the news, the baby dropped her body. In accordance with the church's beliefs, Rinder responded by sitting with an auditor, a Scientologist charged with emotion-checking another, to run out the loss. The process may have worked a little too well, because the book skims over his baby's death in a page and a half. Although silences and omissions are understandable, given the limits of his life at the time, the book doesn't really offer a more nuanced perspective on these losses and estrangements given the distance, and I wonder whether Rinder is still in the process of freeing himself. His only therapy has been conversations with other former Scientologists. There is a sense of a huge emotional backlog. Did he feel love for his children while he was in the Sea Org? Yes, you can never take away the fact that your biological children are something special to you. With Jack, however, it is not even remotely similar. Not even remotely. In some ways, the book is Rinder's attempt to parent Taryn and Benjamin too. A chance to hold his side of that conversation at least. Here's what's important to me. Here's my life. Here are the things that I went through. Like all that time you didn't see me. Where was I? But how well can a one-sided conversation with children really go? The Church of Scientology sees the book as a self-aggrandizing memoir and a compendium of gross exaggerations and provable lies. It accuses Rinder of family betrayal and callous treatment of his ex-wife and children. Isn't Rinder's main aim really to bring down Miscavige and Scientology, which he insistently refers to with a lowercase s in a sort of grammatical emasculation? I harbour hopes that the bubble in which Taryn and Benjamin live may eventually be burst, he says, and that by dismantling the organisation around them, they may wake up or see something that they haven't been able to see when they are in such a controlled environment. Whether you're in a cult, or a bad relationship, or a job you hate, you can always change your life, he says. If I could do it at 52 years old, and walk out the door and abandon everything I had, every friend, every family member, no money, no job, and start afresh, pretty much anybody can do it. That was, at 52 I abandon everything, every friend, Every Family Member The Top Official Who Escapes Scientology by Paula Kokoza Read by Rick Samada We'll be back after this short break Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news! Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster, and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Out now. Bye. Welcome back to Weekend. In our final piece today, we meet the actor Billy Piper. Her hit TV series, I Hate Susie, is returning with three bonus episodes this December called I Hate Susie 2. The writer, Rebecca Nicholson, speaks to Piper about what's in store and how she's dealt with fame since her years as a teenage pop star. Read by Rachel Louise Miller. Hang on, I'll just lock the door, says Billy Piper. She is looking a bit goth, with black hair and black nails. Though her neck is wrapped in a delicate scarf, she has not quite shaken the remnants of the definitely not COVID flu she's had for the last few days. I find it so weird doing interviews in front of people, she says. It's so cringe. I guess if you can completely emotionally disconnect from people around you, then it's fine. But I just find it very tricky. Anyway, so we're in the bathroom. (laughs) Piper is now 40 and has been in the public eye since she was 15. First, she was a pop star and is still the youngest person to debut at number one with her 1998 earworm, Because We Want To. Then in 2003, she became an actor, winning plaudits in Doctor Who as the Doctor's companion, Rose Tyler. Throughout, she has been a fixture of the tabloids. Her two marriages followed with gruesome interest, her ups and downs tracked through a paparazzo lens. Acting is her bread and butter, but since 2016, Piper has moved into another, artier mode. She wrote and directed her debut film, Rare Beasts, in 2019. For anyone expecting light fluff, its vicious and surreal version of an anti-rom-com might have been a bit of a shock. But she is here today to talk about the return of I Hate Susie, the extraordinary series she co-created with the playwright and succession writer Lucy Preble, which follows the misadventures of Susie Pickles, a former teen pop star turned beloved sci-fi actor, whose life falls apart under the combined weight of fragile egos, untrustworthy people, tabloid intrusion and a dogged self-destructive streak. Piper has spent much of her adult life dealing with being tabloid fodder, as she calls it, though she has previously rejected the idea that I Hate Susie is autobiographical. Even so, she has had 25 years to work out how she feels about fame, 
and I suspect she knows what she is talking about. She settles down on the floor, back against the door, and attempts to get comfortable. We were meant to meet in person, but due to various issues, train strikes and illnesses, we're having to do it like this, laptop on Piper's knees, next to the cubicle in the studio of today's photo shoot. It feels appropriate somehow, given I hate Susie's frankness. When the show returns for a three-part Christmas special, Susie is attempting to rehabilitate her public image by going on a Strictly-esque reality TV show called Dance Crazy. I pitched the idea to Lucy a couple of years ago because I wanted to dance, she says. Back in her pop days, she was a brilliant dancer, as YouTube can attest, though she has spent a long time shirking things that remind her of that era. For this, she worked with the same choreographer she had when she was a teenager. I realised I feel so happy when I'm dancing, and it's something that I just never do. I don't even do it in a partying way. I just don't do it anymore. So it was a beautiful thing, she says. She has never been asked to do Strictly, and says she would never sign up. What's good about doing this is that it feels like I'm getting to do Strictly without having to do it she says, though she watches the show with her daughter Tallulah, who is three, and used to watch it with her sons Eugene and Winston, who are 10 and 14. It's really the only one I go for. Through the I Hate Susie kaleidoscope, though, the world of glitter balls becomes a nightmarish, highly pressured fever dream. I tell Piper that I found it very stressful to watch, though she says she's not sure everyone will see it that way. Before Sky picked it up, the series was turned down repeatedly by networks who objected to the character's unlikability. On the surface, it's a woman, a celebrity trying to win back the hearts of the public through going on a reality show and trying to dance as well as she can, she says. But thematically, you're dealing with some big things, which is what Lucy and I love to do. Deep breath then, because I Hate Susie too has its hands full of big things. There's abortion, there's a lot about motherhood, you've got one woman who has a child but also had abortions, and another who is going through the very punishing experience of IVF. During the first episode, there is a matter-of-fact depiction of a termination, and it is as stark and plain as I've seen on screen. I think it's important to show things authentically. I know for a lot of women, having an abortion is deeply traumatic. But for some women, it's, this isn't right for me and I'm going to do it. I think it's different for everyone. They started writing the abortion storyline two years ago, before the fall of Roe v Wade in the US, before famous women began discussing their abortions publicly as a political act. Now it feels like we've deliberately plotted this in light of what's been going on in the world politically, but it's playing on all of our minds. I'm glad we kept it in, and that we had support to show it in the way that we're showing it. There is another big theme running through the show. There's this stuff about women being called crazy generally, but also in the public eye. She seems hesitant as she tries to work out what she wants to say without giving too much away. I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you've followed a protagonist, 
women who we call crazy or who do tragic, deemed to be mental things, by the time you get to the behaviours that frighten people, would you think they were crazy? Or would you completely understand how they got to that point? And would their behaviour actually seem kind of reasonable and inevitable somehow? When they were planning the series, Piper and Preble thought about women in the public eye. We talked a lot about Britney Spears and Caroline Flack and Amy Winehouse. Obviously, this stuff has been going on for years, but it's the more contemporary stars who have had what people call a public meltdown. Piper never met Spears, though they were both pop stars at the turn of the century. My career was dying out as she was hitting mega stardom, she recalls. I was insanely jealous of her, but also loved her and was a fan, but our paths never crossed. Piper says that in this season, Susie's story becomes very uncomfortable, though anyone who has seen the first will wonder how it can get worse. But it also has to be funny, and I think it's a great tonic that there's so much dancing. You can have all these big, threadbare emotions and then do a nice dance. That seems to sum up Piper nicely. She admits she has a public-facing side. People who know me really well say I'm different when I'm operating in that world. My kids will always pull me up on that. They say I sound different or really formal or really posh. But as I'm getting older, I feel like it's happening less, which is probably a healthy sign. Even in her private life, though, she says she is guarded. I think that's just one of the slightly depressing side effects that come with being famous from a young age, or just famous at all. I Hate Susie makes fame look awful. In her experience, is it? Fame is awful, she says bluntly. It's gross. It's such a dark thing. And it will change your everyday experience of life in a way that is depressing, frankly, in my experience of it. When I imagine some of my happiest and my freest times, most of them are pre-fame. But you were famous at 15, I say. Are we talking about before then? She laughs. Not to be down on my kids. (laughs) I've obviously had deeply meaningful experiences with my children and they made me happier than anything and that's the truth. But I also really cherish the memories of not being famous. She shrugs. She explains that fame, at whatever level, changes the way people behave around you. If you're treated well, it's disproportionate. If you're treated badly, it's disproportionate. There are very few people who can be normal around it, or normal around you. It makes for a very warped world. I love what I do professionally, but I also like not being too close to the shininess of it. In that case, the question most people would have is, why do something that keeps you in the public eye? She sighs. Yeah, it's annoying because I love creating things. I love production. As I'm getting older, I'm enjoying making things from the ground up more and more, and I think probably in the future I'll act less and less. I love what I do. She pauses. But I'm tiring of the nonsense of it all. To be honest, I have been since I was 19. It felt quite poisonous from a very early age. 
Now, I'm so grateful that I had those experiences a long time ago and now I can pretty much entirely focus on the work and not the bullshit. If anyone is familiar with the bullshit, it is Piper. She was born in Swindon and went to the Sylvia Young Theatre School in London, where one of her schoolmates was Amy Winehouse. When she was 14, she signed a record contract and began living alone in a London hotel room soon after. Between 1998 and 2000, she had three number ones, got two Brit Award nominations and released a platinum-selling debut album, Honey to the Bee. Unsurprisingly, though, there was a dark side to being a teenage pop star. It felt desperate and lonely, she told Desert Island Discs in 2021. Piper's eldest son is now the same age she was when she was getting ready to launch her pop career, which means she has been thinking about that time again. I just don't know in what world anyone thought that was okay, she says. She laughs, but is steely. I know how unbelievably dead set on it I was, and how precocious I was, but really, it's just so... it's so young. Was there a sense that your family, for example, didn't know the world that you were getting into? Nobody really knows what that's going to be like. There was no model for it, and it was normalised very quickly, so everyone just gets carried along with it. And... Everyone gets seduced by it, myself included, so I didn't have any hard feelings towards anyone about it. Besides, she says, she was quite good at getting what she wanted, and back then, she really wanted to be a pop star. Has she grown better at dealing with the effects of that time? Um, she says, I guess I processed some of it because my allergy to looking at myself from that period has completely changed. There were years when I couldn't even see a video I did or hear a song I did and not have some adrenal reaction to it. I couldn't sing anymore. I would really take offence to people playing my songs in a fun and ironic way. It would sketch me out. I didn't feel in any way connected to that person, like total disassociation. And I don't feel like that anymore. What shifted? I don't know, really. Age? Time? Therapy? Now she can at least look at her pop past again. There is the dancing in I Hate Susie too, which put her into a dance studio for the first time in years. Recently, Piper starred in Catherine Called Birdie, a lovely period teen movie directed by Lena Dunham, who felt that Piper could put a twist on the archetypal English Rose mother character. I have long loved Billy's work as an actor, Dunham tells me. She's funny, brave, angry, complex, beautiful. When I met her, she was somehow even better. It turns out that Dunham was also a fan of Piper's pop days. The director first heard the single Honey to the Bee on MTV when she was a teenager, on holiday with her parents in the UK. I came home convinced I'd found a hot new indie artist. In my defence, she always had that energy, Dunham says. She used the song in Catherine Called Birdie. There is a brief moment when a medievalish reimagining can be heard. Lena said she really wanted it in the movie and she really wanted me to sing it, says Piper with a smile. Which was a bit... 
That was a step too far. When her pop career fizzled out in the early noughties, Piper made the move to acting, which is what she had always wanted to do. I was kind of naive about that next phase of my career, which was useful because you're not as scared of rejection, but there was loads of rejection. She had a lot of baggage to get rid of, she says. A lot of it was just tabloid fodder, rather than, oh, she was a pop star. It was more, she was a pop star, then she got pissed for five years with an old man. I think that was the lasting image when I walked into an audition room, she giggles. Older man, not old man. He's an old man now, but then so am I. She is talking about Chris Evans, whom she married in Vegas when she was 18 and he was 35. They split up when she was 21 and divorced in 2007, though remain close friends. The way she talks about it now makes it sound like a happy time. She nods. Loved it. Loved that time. Learned so much really needed it after the experiences that I'd had leading up to that point, and I felt like I'd actually found a real friend. I guess meeting someone who had experienced fame for 20 years at that level, it was very nurturing. And also very drunken, which I needed. I had a lot of fun during those years. Even so, the baggage took a long time to finally fall away. She did Doctor Who, alongside Christopher Eccleston and then David Tennant. Anyone who liked Doctor Who was drawn to the character, and that was great, although it made me very famous again, which I had an issue with. She left in 2008, though continues to dip in and out of that world, most recently with an audiobook series. Then I felt very rebellious and wanted to do something completely different, so I did Secret Diary. Secret Diary of a Call Girl, ITV's raucous adaptation of Belle de Jour's memoirs of a high-end sex worker, ran for four seasons and was popular, though more with viewers than with critics. It is where Piper first met Preble, who created and wrote on the show, and who pitched Piper the idea, though Preble left after two series. It actually had legs to be something really quite interesting – Piper says now, and it became more about clothes and silly sex. She has said in the past that she worried doing the show might damage her career, and I wonder if she feels like it did. Yep, absolutely. I think on some level it really was very hard for me to move beyond that. So, you know, I had to sort of get rid of all of that. In 2016, Piper starred in a play called Yerma at the National in London, and it was a huge turning point in her career. It changed a lot of things for me, she says. She had done theatre work before. She met her second husband, Lawrence Fox, when they starred together in Treats at the Garrick Theatre in London in 2007. Before the interview, I'm told that for legal reasons, she can't discuss Fox, whom she divorced in 2016, and who is the father of her two sons, Over the last few years, he has become a vocal, anti-woke campaigner, and their relationship seems fraught, to say the least. Piper worked with Preble again in The Effect at The National in London, but Yerma seems to have been the one that finally let her, as she says, get rid of all of that. The play is about a woman who is unable to have a child, and it put Piper through the ringer. 
she won every acting gong going for it, taking home all six Best Actress awards on the theatre circuit in 2016 and 2017, a feat never managed before or since. I started Yerma at a really tricky time in my personal life, and it felt like I needed it. The play transferred to New York, where she was acclaimed all over again by US theatre critics. Was she ever tempted by a move to the US? Yeah, but every time I went out there, I wanted it all for ten days, then it just started to feel sinister. Also, she says, she doesn't like leaving her kids for long. It's a problem for my agent, but I just can't do it. It's one of those things I've kicked into the long grass and may never do. I don't know. Perhaps the biggest curveball of her career, the biggest swerve away from teen pop star and tea-time telly icon, was Piper's directorial debut, Rare Beasts, which came out in 2021. It is a theatrical, excoriating film that looks at self-loathing women, men who hate women, and desperate anxieties about childhood and being a parent. It took years to get made – In part, she explains, because it was such a hard sell. There were the usual things, of people not being likeable and it being quite relentlessly upsetting, she says, and laughs. I wonder too if people were surprised that this was the film she had in her. Obviously, I know myself, so it's no surprise to me, but I guess other people might find it a bit like, oh yeah, she's a miserable fucking bitch, She laughs and laughs. This is a major downer. Is she a miserable fucking bitch? No, she says. I think I am interested in and fascinated by the darkness of things, but I also love how funny those things are. It's why she feels she has met her match in Preble. Both Rare Beasts and I Hate Susie are, she admits, demanding. They are reach through the screen and shake you demanding. The Billy Piper of the current era seems not undelighted by this idea. Piper hurt her back when filming some of the dance scenes for I Hate Susie too, and then hurt it again at a promotional photo shoot for the series. For a while, she couldn't walk. She is still recovering from an operation to fix a bulging disc. Their last couple of months have been pretty gruelling for a number of reasons, she says, which might explain why, when I ask her what she's doing next, she sighs deeply and says she doesn't know. The thought of filming seems like a lot, she says, but I feel like I've got a few ideas to start writing something. Besides, she's got to do Christmas first. She is planning something huge, It starts early in my house and it lasts until the end of January. I fucking love Christmas, she says, lighting up. I know that might be hard to hear, considering that you're a miserable fucking bitch, that I'm a miserable fucking bitch, she hoots. But I come alive at Christmas. That was I Was Insanely Jealous of Britney Spears, Billy Piper on Teen Pop Stardom the fun of her drunk years and making darkness funny by Rebecca Nicholson read by Rachel Louise Miller that's all from us this has been Weekend a Guardian podcast if you're enjoying it 
please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Rachel Louise Miller and Rick Samada and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade Greaves. This episode was produced by Holly Fisher. Original music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.